Blog Talk Radio. Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, and I do see several guests in the chat room, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Well, how many of you have traced research and considered just telling your story in a documentary? I'm, I'm getting a message that some people are not hearing, so please let me know if you can hear. Just checking just to make sure. Can everyone hear me? Just checking. Please answer me. Okay. All right. They can hear. Thank you so much. Well, back to the question. How many of you have ever considered researching the history of your community and then putting it in a documentary. Well, many of you may have known that in the past I have had film producers on the show and they have done just that. We've had Thomas Allen Harris, the producer of Through a Lens Darkly, on our show to talk about his documentary. We've also had Charles Brown Jr., and he spoke of his family, the Cobbs, that were banished from Pierce City, Missouri, and also Regina Mason. Do you all know who Regina Mason is? Regina Mason is a descendant of William Grimes, who wrote the first fugitive slave narrative, and she is also working on a film right now. And tonight's show we will have Christopher Everett, who is a writer, film director, and film producer from Laurenburg, North Carolina. And he has experience in film, graphic design, marketing, and advertising. He recently directed and produced his first feature-length documentary entitled Wilmington on Fire which is on the 1898 Wilmington Massacre Coop in Wilmington, North Carolina. 
So I am so excited to welcome Christopher to this show. So let me give a warm welcome to Christopher Everett to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Christopher. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing fine, Christopher. So before we get into talking about the film and to the research, why don't you give us a little bit more information about your background? Okay. Well, my name is Christopher Everett. I'm 33 years old, uh, born and raised in a small town in North Carolina called Laurenburg. Um, I kind of started off years ago into the film industry, um, I was about a hundred. I was about a hundred pounds lighter back then, <laughs> but uh, I started off <laughs> doing doing acting and modeling um, back in like when I was in college, actually. And okay. while I was in college, I was studying graphic design at the same time. But that's where I kind of got my interest in being involved in film. But it was in in front of the camera, being an actor and model, et cetera. So I did that mm-hmm. for a little while, and then I moved to Atlanta in 2007 to try to take my acting and modeling game to the next level. So, you know, everyone was starting to do a lot of things in Atlanta, and I was tired of North Carolina, so I said, you know what, I'll make the move to Atlanta and try to figure something out. But when I moved to Atlanta, I kind of just, you know, didn't want to do acting anymore, kind of fell off, gained a whole bunch of weight, and then just decided not to do acting anymore. And I decided that I wanted to tell my own story, develop my own projects. So in 2008, um, I developed a small little fundraising documentary about a historical black boarding and day school in my hometown of Laurenburg, North Carolina, called the Laurenburg Institute. And the school was around for about, you know, 100 and it was around since about 1904. And when I did the research and were, was talking to that guy who actually runs the school now, his grandparents started in 1904. And I was talking to him about, you know, why did his grandparents come all the way from Alabama? to start the school in Laurenburg, and he was saying that a lot of people didn't want to come to North Carolina back in those times in the, you know, early 1900s because just of the racism and things that were going on, the climate of everything in the state back then. So that made me want to do a little bit more research. Okay, what was going on in North Carolina back in 1904, 1903, 1902? And then I kept running into what happened in Wilmington, North Carolina, with the Wilmington Massacre of 1898, which led to the whole Jim Crow movement that happened throughout the state of North Carolina in 1900. So I was like, wow, I never heard of this before. Like, this, it, it just reminded me of the movie Rosewood by John Singleton that I saw years ago and also hearing about the Tulsa Massacre and, and things like that. So I saw that a few people wrote books on it, but I saw that there wasn't anyone who actually made a film or a documentary on it. So I took it as a personal challenge as well that I wanted to do something on it, and thus I developed Wilmington on Fire. Well, isn't that interesting? So you actually met somebody working on another project, and that's how you heard about Wilmington, North Carolina. Well, you know, I have to admit, this was new information for me because I never heard of the 1898 uh, massacre. So give us more information and also tell us what kind of sources that you read to find out about what happened in Wilmington, North Carolina. 
All right. Well, um, <clears throat> I didn't find out about it working on another project. It, it was actually my project. Um, the, about okay. the Warburg Institute. It was like a yes. I did like a little it was like a little small thirty minute mini documentary film. Um, because mm-hmm. you know I grew up around the school, I know the family and everything, so it was like a you know a way for me to give back type of thing. I wanted to help the school out some way. I knew I had a background in film, so I said, you know what, I'll help you do this film project, <clears throat> you know, on on the school, and you might can just use it for fundraising or awareness. So just doing the research for that project kind of led me into the the eighteen ninety eight story, but <clears throat> but the sources and everything, uh, what. Well, I'll go back to the Wilmington Massacre. The Wilmington Massacre was pretty much an all-out attack on the African-American community um, in the city of Wilmington, North Carolina, on November 10, 1898. And it's also considered one of the only successful examples of an actual coup d'etat that has ever happened in America. And a coup d'etat is an actual overthrow of an existing government. And that's what actually happened in Wilmington on November 10, 1898. Um, Wilmington back then was a majority black city, and it was a very prosperous and thriving city back then. Back then, Wilmington was the main city in North Carolina. It wasn't Charlotte. It wasn't Raleigh. Everyone wanted to be in Wilmington. Um, And also back then in Wilmington and also throughout the state of North Carolina, you had a thing going on called fusion politics, and that was a joining of a lot of black Republicans and white populists who kind of merged together and developed this quote-unquote phrase called fusion politics to pretty much put their people in office and try to make the laws more, you know, favorable for everyone to try to, I guess, the hopes of reconstruction to really, you know, really put out reconstruction to what it really was supposed to be for, you know, the country. But you had a, a also you had a white supremacy movement that was going on in North Carolina and especially in Wilmington during the time as well, who didn't want to see that happen. So thus, thus for the 1898 Wilmington massacre happened, and then when the massacre actually happened, they removed all the black police officers, all the black aldermen. They got rid of all the fusion, the white fusion office members, and everything, and totally took over the government in the city of Wilmington. But it was also a statewide white supremacy movement. They rigged the elections across the state, and they pretty much were able to put all of their people in certain offices throughout the state of North Carolina. And then in 1900, they were able to win the governorship in North Carolina. And then after that, that's how they were able to basically set up Jim Crow throughout the whole state of North Carolina. And that was the main reason, that was the reason why you had Jim Crow that set in in North Carolina was because of the 1898 massacre. And that's how impactful and important, you know, knowing about this event is. And a lot of people don't even know how we actually came into Jim Crow in North Carolina, but the 1898 massacre was the reason why. Right. And so to to tell this story, what did you do and what kind of research went into just developing the, the storyline so that people could understand yes. the November 10, 1898 Wilmington Massacre? Well, I started off, you know, I started off um, researching. I actually found that, they, that the state of North Carolina actually had a 1898 race riot commission. 
and they actually developed uh, an official state report on the Wilmington Massacre. And it's available online for whoever wants to see it. You can just type in Google and just put 1898 Wilmington Race Riot Commission Report, and it will come up. It's still online for free. So that was my first thing. I wanted to check out the report, see what all they had to work with. And just after reading the whole full 600-page report, you know, for about a month or so, then I went to looking at some other sources, read a few books of people who have written about the topic over the years. And I also went to certain archives as well just to check out certain documents that were featured in the books and also featured in the actual state report. And then actually talked to the people who actually worked on the state report as well, you know, some of the historians and researchers, and just got some insight from them on, you know, whether they research, whether they get information from, and all that. So it was pretty much like it took me about a year and a half to just collect a whole bunch of data to really just have mm-hmm. to get a starting point of how I wanted to really attack the story and develop the story. And also the areas of research that I needed to go to, whether it was some archival, you know, places who had a deep archive of a lot of, you know, old photos and documents and deeds and stuff like that. Or I had to also just research and look up a lot of books that were written about. Because you had, you've had several books that have been written about the 1898 massacre since 1901. So I would try to search those out as well and read those to get a, you know, sort of some type of perspective as well to go along in developing the story. So it pretty much was like a year and a half of just research and contacting people who actually contributed to certain, you know, writings and also the official state report. And you were doing this by yourself or did you have a team of people working with you? Uh, uh, When you're an independent filmmaker, (laughs) it means that you're broke. So I was by myself um, doing a lot of this stuff. Um, But the experience I gained doing the small project for the Lawrenberg Institute really helped me. Um, in doing research for this project, but also um, I had a while, while while I had the research and kind of developed a, a I guess a structural outline how I wanted to attack it. Um, I reached out to one guy who's in the film. His name's Larry Rennie Thomas, and he's featured throughout the film. He was one of the first people I reached out to to kind of get the ball rolling and try to actually start filming some people on camera. And he has been a real, real big advocate about 1898 and the whole reparations movement behind 1898. And I reached out to him because I saw that he had an organization. And his organization, it actually seeks out direct descendants of the victims of the 1898 massacre. And he actually had, like, the the grandson of Alexander Manley, who had the black-owned newspaper that was burned down back Back then, during the massacre, um, he's worked with him for years and a few other direct descendants of the victims of the 1898 massacre as well. So I really wanted, not only I didn't, I only, I just didn't want just the research to back it up. I also wanted firsthand accounts from, you know, personal stories that were passed down, you know, to children and grandchildren, you know, for several generations. And I wanted those stories to be on camera as well. So I wanted to really do this thing of of sharing those stories that were passed down to grandchildren and great-grandchildren to go along with the research and, and documentation as well. 
So I wanted people to have a personal experience, but also wanted it to be, you know, factual and educational at the same time. Right. This sounds like you, I mean, it sounds like you put a lot of yourself into this with the, the passion, yeah. the drive. What what was driving you to to make this um, happen? It's just, you know, I just, I just like to talk, I just like to tell these type of stories um, that aren't really, you know, talked about in the mainstream. Um, you know, I wanted this to be my first film project, um, first major film project. And I just like to do things, you know, a certain way. You know, I want to, if I'm going to do something, I want to go all out and I want to go all in with it. I don't want to, you know, half it, you know, it's either all the way or nothing. So, you know, I pretty much, used all my money, uh, all my savings and everything for the past four years to, to, to research this project, to develop it, to shoot it, to film it, and, and get everything going and everything. So, But uh-huh. it never really felt like work um, while I did this. It was a fun experience. Uh, met a lot of great people, um, a lot of good researchers and historians and professors. And every time I would interview somebody, it was like I was getting a free education. You know, every time. And I was like, wow, I wish all my teachers were this interesting. <laughs> you know, even even my camera guys, they would say the same thing. They always talk about Wilmington on Fire being one of their best film projects just because of all the knowledge and information and, and things like that that we would just hear sitting down for hours and hours talking with historians and direct descendants and activists and scholars and researchers. So it was just a great all-around experience, even though the work has been hard, but it hasn't really felt like a lot of work, in a way. Right. Well, you mentioned descendants, and can you give us uh, you know, an example of what uh, a descendant had to say about the massacre? Well, I know, um, you know, we talked to uh, one descendant, uh, like I mentioned earlier, Alex Manley's descendant, Dr. Lewin Manley. He lives in Atlanta, and he's a retired dentist. But his grandfather was Alex Manley. And any time anyone out there who's listening, any time you Google or research on the 1898 massacre, Alex Manley's name always pops up. Um, mm-hmm. He was one of the key components, 1898 massacre, from the victim standpoint. Um, he was an African American man who had a um, who had actually one of the only one of the only very few black owned daily newspapers um, I know in North Carolina and possibly throughout the country back then. But you know he was of mixed race as well. But he always recognized himself as a as a black man first and foremost. And he was a very um, he was a very um, outspoken person who really supported the Republican Party agenda back then. And back then, the Republican Party was more of your, you know, liberal type of party back then than what it is now. So he was a very, very key figure in the city of Wilmington back then. But, you know, his newspaper building was burnt to the ground back then, and he had to pretty much, him and his brothers and stuff like that, had to pretty much leave the city forever and could never come back because of they were actually going to kill him. But but just sharing the just hearing some of the personal stories of and this is one thing that not only from Dr. Manley but from a couple of other descendants that we have in the film, a lot of them didn't really know about 
the history until they got older. Like I know Dr. Manley talked about how his parents rarely talked about it, and he said that that his grandparents rarely talked about it to his parents when they were coming up. And I've noticed that in our community, we don't really talk about those type of those type of tragic events. You know, it's kind of like you talk about it, but you don't talk about it. Um, and I think it was based off of fear, in a way, because I know we're going to do a follow-up to Wilmington on Fire, and we're going to we've actually connected with a few of more of Alex Manley's descendants, and they talked about how when Manley moved away and you know never came back to Wilmington, how he was pretty much paranoid the rest of his life. You know, his, he had his kids. His kids would have a a bodyguard that would go with them to school. He was living in, in Philadelphia, but he still feared still feared for his life. Because uh-huh. of the so just hearing those type of things, just the, you know, the, the 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 terrorism that black people went through back then. Even though they left the city and the state, there still was a fear in the back of their heads that at any time, you know, someone could come for them because the federal government didn't do anything about the massacre. They just let it happen. So that's uh-huh. why that fear was always in the back of their mind that, you know, if we talk about it or say something about it, you know, they might come up here and get us. Right. So just hearing and- those type of stories from Dr. Manley and other descendants. I know one lady, she read an actual letter from her great-grandfather after he was banished from Wilmington after the 1898 massacre. He was trying to come to just come to his mom's funeral, and he wasn't even allowed to even come to his own mother's funeral because he was banished from the city. And if he was going to come back, they were possibly were going to kill him. So just having, you know, descendants read personal letters, you know, firsthand writings of their actual, you know, grandfathers or great-grandfathers or grandmothers, you know, was really, it was really touching. You know what I'm saying? Just to yes, hear, you know, I, yes, the words I can from, from, their, from their own people. Right. And, you know, you mentioned uh, Dr. Manley. And how he spoke of, of of his grandfather Alex Manley actually leaving. I mean, you you spoke of the fire where his business was burned down. But what happened to some of the other people? Were there deaths that were associated? I mean, you could tell us how many people were actually killed during this massacre. Oh yeah, they killed. It was a combination. It was a com- it was a they had a banishment campaign. If they didn't kill you, they pretty much exiled you from the city. And you could never come back. But they also killed a lot of black people at will. There's all there's been countless amount of stories. No one ever no one doesn't even know the real figure because back then, see they burnt down the only black newspaper, which was Alex Manley. So we're not gonna we never could get that perspective because his his building was burnt down. So the major newspapers back then that covered this, they all were part of the massacre, you know. Um, so they they would make up crazy stories saying that it was only two people killed, or they said that African Americans started the massacre. And see, those were the stories that a lot of the newspapers pushed back then for years. You mm-hmm. see, because they were a part of the whole massacre as well. They were part of the propaganda arm of the massacre. So if they put it out in the newspaper, that's all you can really go by. But when people started leaving and putting the word out about what really happened, you know, back then, then that's when people started to talk. I'm like, okay, that didn't really happen, but we can't say anything. But 
there's been, you know, speculation there was, you know, 12 people killed, eight people killed, also several hundred. Just just from personal, you know, letters and, you know, so-called firsthand accounts, it looks like it's several hundred to a few thousand. Because oh. when you go by the census, um, like I said, Wilmington was a majority, slightly majority black city in 1898. After the massacre happens two years later, the black population is like cut in half. So I know just more than just people just being exiled and leaving, they actually had to kill a, a nice amount of people as well for that population just to just split in half in like a year and a half time. You know what I'm saying? So, right. And, and well, people also, have been, I mean, you know, trying to still research like the actual number, which we probably will, will never know because mm-hmm. a lot of the newspapers back then, they were actually a part of the 1898 massacre and also a part of trying to cover it up and minimize it and mm-hmm. to actually change the narrative of it as well to make it seem like this was something that had to be done because, you know, African-Americans were being corrupt and doing all this stuff so the good white folks had to rise up and do this. But it was only two people killed, and that was the narrative that they always pushed out there for, for many years. Mm-hmm. So that that was the way that they justified what happened in that community. Yes. So yes. when you you spoke of the narrative, so you found old newspaper articles that supported what you just said. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you could just yeah, in the the articles we have some of them in the film, and you can just you can just just check out some of the articles. Anybody who's a researcher out there, and they'll say yeah, you know. Um, only two people were killed. Um, also, there was another article in another newspaper said that it was a black person who actually shot first, and that's what started the massacre, which all that stuff wasn't, wasn't true at all. You know, mm-hmm. That wasn't the reason why the 1898 massacre happened. But, right. you know, they always had to put out these type of smear campaigns. And when you look at what's going on today, that's why I tell people, you know, just always look at history because you'll be so surprised that what you're seeing today is really nothing new. You know? mm-hmm. The same stuff you look in the old 1800, 1890, you know, newspapers, it's like the same type of stuff that they talk, you know, they, that they say about black people today in the media. You know, nothing and, and has things have, really yeah, changed, nothing, you know, nothing has changed. To, you know, making black people seem a certain way to justify doing harm to them. Right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come right back because this is an interesting uh, discussion and I, I know everyone wants to hear more. So just a quick break.
Well, welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Now, I have opened up the phone line if any of you would want to call in and ask a question of our special guest. By the way, just to reiterate, you have been listening to Christopher Everett, a film director who is talking about Wilmington on Fire. And Wilmington on Fire chronicles the bloody attack on the African African American community and unseated elected officials in the port city of Wilmington, North Carolina, November the 10th, 1898. So Christopher, you mentioned that you spoke to some of the descendants and to certain experts and historians. Why don't you tell us how did you go about selecting these individuals to be featured in your film? Pretty much, um, I looked at the actual Race Riot Commission report that I was telling you about earlier that they had available online, and I looked at some of the contributors to it. And one was... Larry Rennie Thomas, who I told you who I reached out to, he -hmm. was one. You know, I talked to him on the phone about it. He was all for it. He said, hey, whenever you're ready to film something, let's do it. Um, I reached out to the lady who actually wrote the the official state report, um, Larray Elfleet. Um, She was down to do it. She said, hey, Chris, whenever you're available, just let me know, and we can film it, film my stuff. I reached out to mm-hmm. Professor um, Sandy Darity of Duke University. He actually contributed to the state report as well. Um, he His whole focus was the economic impact analysis um, of the 1898 massacre because I wanted to have that aspect to, to my film as well. And everybody who I reached out to either, like, participated or contributed to the actual state report or they've written books on it as well. And when I reached out to them, they all were for it. They all said, hey, yeah, let's do it. Um, I've, you know, we need to have a film about this, about this, um, this topic out here. And everyone was, was, was willing to do it and was willing to help me out uh, with research or any research they had, notes and everything. So it, was, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't difficult at all to get the people who I had in my film. Um, that was the easy part, actually. <laughs> okay, Honestly. but what was the difficult part? Um, the difficult part was just um, the funding um, and the funding of archival material. And a lot of people don't understand that when you do these type of historical projects, um, this stuff costs. <laughs> a lot of the archival material that you see in, in films, you see on PBS and stuff like that of old photos and old video and all that, a lot of that stuff costs, and the stuff I was paying for ranged from like five dollars a photo, which is nothing. But you had some stuff that ranged that went up to a hundred dollars a photo and a thousand dollars a photo, and that's mm-hmm. when it kind of you know didn't really cost you when you have to 
have a lot of it, the film, to kind of carry your story. You know, you just don't want to have just a whole bunch of talking heads. you got to have the, the archival material to kind of back up what they're saying as well. But also, some of the, the archival stuff just didn't exist. Like, we know they killed people, but they just didn't take pictures of them actually doing it. So mm-hmm. I had to actually pay an illustrator who's a good friend of mine out of Charlotte. He's a great artist. His name's um, Wally McNair in um, Charlotte, North Carolina. And he did – I wanted to make illustrations that were kind of contemporary in a way to kind of catch younger people's attention. So mm-hmm. we did like a mixed-media type thing of combining, you know, the archival material, the old archival material that we have in the film, and mix it with some up updated contemporary illustrations of what happened in certain points of the massacre, like when black folks were getting killed by the Gatling gun or they were getting lynched or, you know, they were being sent out of, out of the city, you know? So, so if I couldn't find archival material, I had to pay like an illustrator to kind of illustrate a certain scene that I wanted to, you know, bring across in the film. But that Mm -hmm. was really the hard part was, getting the funds to really finish that part of it, which took a couple of years to do, but we finally did it. Right. Now, one, I, I, and, and watching the film, I did uh, listen to, I think it was Kent Chadfield, or it may have been uh, Larry Rennie Thomas, where they spoke of, of the a photo in the library with the participants of the massacre with the guns in their hands. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I, I think that was Kent. Um, Kent Chatfield, you know, he's, he's an independent researcher, spent years, countless years of researching this topic. And he kind of starts off the film about when he first heard about 1898. And the Wilmington Light Infantry Building, where a lot of this stuff went down back in 1898, back in, i say, the, the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, it was the actual library in Wilmington, the public library there. And mm-hmm. he talked about, and Ken was talking about how he would hear the stories about 1898 from the white community in the library and at his church. His church was right beside the, li- the public library back then. And he would hear these stories. And he talked about how, you know, these old men would talk about the massacre of 1898. And also they had the Gatling gun. In, in that area back then, too, that they used in 1898. And then when he talks about it, actually show a picture of the Gatling gun. You know, that was the, the picture that they took after they did the massacre, you know, them on the wagon with the Gatling gun in the back. So when he talked about, you know, playing with the Gatling gun as a kid, I wanted to show people that, yeah, it was a real Gatling gun that they used, and that's why I kind of put it up there on the screen for people to see, that now nah, just, we're just not making this up. They actually use a certain type of military, you know, machine gun from from back in the day to do the massacre and kill all these black people in the city. And it, I think, it's just amazing to to think that that photo was available and in the library. They were proud <laughs> yeah, I got of that. that um, yeah, it's, it's it's available um, for you know the use. They they have it. Yeah, this is available in the library. They have a whole, they have a, 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 a small collection in the public library today that just focuses on 1898. That picture is in there. Another picture of um, the white mob standing in front of um, Alex Manley's newspaper building that's burned down. 
They have a picture of that. They have a few pictures of um, those scenes, the aftermath scenes of the 1898 massacre. Right. So this this was definitely something that was planned, but it sounds like the community was proud of what happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, back then, you had a lot of you had a lot of uh, um, white folks who were very proud of what happened because see, you got to understand that, and we talk about it in the film about propaganda and how they ganda and and pretty much conditioned people, you know, for the carnage to come. Um, because you have to condition people, you know, of why you're about to do what you're about to do, so they won't feel you know, sorry about it or try to stop you to do it either, you know, doing it as well. And mm-hmm. so when the massacre happened, you had a lot of white pastors that was pretty much saying that this is God's will, that this happened, that it needed to happen to restore balance and order in the city of Wilmington, that white supremacy is is, is the rule and, and law of the day, and it needs to be back to what it is, <laughs> you know, so... And you you had the and these are like written accounts of people saying this in newspapers and everything back then. Mm-hmm, so the mm-hmm. whole city um, changed dramatically um, after 1898. Um, the African American community um, hasn't been the same since. Like I said, it, it was real progressive back then. Um, it was the uh, the largest you know population of people back then in the city, but now. It's it's like eighty it's like eighty percent white, nineteen twenty percent black now, and you know, and that's what it is. You know, African Americans hardly own and control anything in the city anymore. Um, so you can really see the effects that still linger um, throughout the city. You know, even you know over a hundred years later, you still see the, the effects of it. And what's the general reaction of the community once Wilmington on Fire was premiered in your in that community? Oh well, oh it was it was a great experience because I actually premiered it uh, for the first time ever um, this past November, and they have a big big film festival in Wilmington. It's called the Kukulores Film Festival. It's a real big festival. It's one of the biggest. Uh, biggest and best film festivals in the whole state of North Carolina. So I premiered there, and it was during the same week of the actual anniversary of the massacre. And I didn't know what to expect. You know, I'm like, okay, it's only it's maybe, you know, a couple hundred people might show up. But I actually sold out the screening like about three or four days before my actual screening date. And we were in the biggest venue they had, which held about 550 people. And it sold out you know, four days before my actual screening. So on the day of the event, you know, they squeeze in about, you know, 50 extra more people. So it's 600 people on the inside, and you have about 400 people on the outside in a long line just hoping to get in. Somebody didn't show up. And I was like, wow. I was blown away. We actually broke we broke the film festival's record for most attended screening ever um, this past November. Yes, so while you had that large number of people following this film, was there a whole discussion? Because in the beginning, I think I heard you say something about reparations. Uh, Were some of the descendants there to participate in some type of dialogue regarding what Uh, happened? Yes, we had a, you know, in every screening, whether it was Kukuloris or 
any of the screenings that we have, we always have a, a discussion afterwards, panel discussion with me and a few other people. Some of the descendants really couldn't come because they don't live in Wilmington, and they're kind of mm-hmm. old as well, you know, so they can't really travel. But, you know, myself, I'm an advocate for reparations, and Larry Rennie Thomas, that's what his organization is doing as well. So we had me and Larry, Ken, and a few other people as well um, on, you know, doing discussions and talking about reparations and, you know, ways we need to push for this and, and just just having an open dialogue, not only, not only us talking, but we had the community to talk as well. And a lot of people, which, which really surprised me, I've noticed that a lot of white folks actually agree. After seeing the film, they actually mm-hmm. agree that re- some type of reparations needs to happen. And that really shocked me. I'm saying, you know, a lot of people, including white folks, even agreeing. But after they watched the film, we put the evidence right in front front of you. You can't rebuke it. You, know, you can't refute it. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's right there. It's clear cut. It happened. This is this is what happened. You see the, the, the direct results and the effects of it. There it is. So, you know, when you're saying that, because you said there was this commission, there were books that people had written, but now you're saying, okay, this film is out there. Is that bringing to light something that maybe only a few people were exposed to, but now you've exposed more in the community, or do you still have this kind of hush-hush, let's not talk about it, uh, oh, now there, it's, it's, making, it's making the dialogue more open because I'm going to tell you this story. I showed, I, we did a film screening up in Goldsboro. We did, I showed the film in Goldsboro, North Carolina, twice earlier this year. And Goldsboro is about an hour and a half from Wilmington. I had this older gentleman, older African-American gentleman. He stood up at the Q&A, and he talked about, he was from Wilmington, actually. He's an old guy. I think he's about in his 90s. And he talked about growing up in Wilmington as a kid, as a boy. And he talked about how his parents never told him they they never they 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 told him to never talk about what happened in 1898, and and he he remember hearing you know his parents talk about it, but he could never talk about it, you know they never really wanted him to talk about it outside of his of the house, and he said that was like the first time, you know he said this was the first time he actually you know he felt the courage you know after watching the film, you know to talk about it in public. You know, wow. so those, those are the mm-hmm. things that we're doing. You know, that's what the film is doing, showing that, you know, you don't have to be afraid to talk about this anymore. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do the film, you know, to show that you don't, you know, us as African-American people, we don't have to hide, you know, this part of what happened to us. You know, we need to be vocal about it, and we need to demand, you know, something needs to be done about it as well. Mm-hmm. So you you have this open dialogue because what you're saying is these people live with secrets, yeah. and uh, until they had an opportunity to get these secrets out and even just share this, I mean, how can you yeah. have healing when you have this kind of undercurrent that's a part of your life and you know that something actually happened, but yeah. you can't talk about it? Um, so it, it sounds like it was a good thing to at least have that dialogue with the community yeah. well is this and something also, that... and also it kind of you know a lot of stuff that we talk about in the film you know a lot of people are still seeing remnants of what's going on today still you know of what happened in 1898 and i think that's what's mm-hmm. really getting people to really engage in the dialogue after the film screening because they still see the stuff whether it's propaganda 
or just the government and stuff like that, whether it's in their own state or their own city, they kind of see a lot of that still going on within their communities today. And I think that's what's really, really getting them is that showing that how a lot of this stuff that you saw happen back then, that stuff is still kind of still happening today. And I think that's what's really getting a lot of people to really, I guess you know, so, have yeah. them wake up to a lot of stuff that's going on today. Right. Now, when you laid out this story, because I know you had to, to, to lay it out in such a way that people really would kind of understand it and, and, and go to the next level wherever you wanted them to go. Tell us how you laid this story out for people. Well, it's a <laughs> it's a it's a hard process for just the average person, but I don't know, you have to really have a creative mind and what I did was just I just did like I did like a book report. I just you know, took it back to like I was in middle school or high school. And when you learn you know, when you first learn how to do a book report, you know, you start with an outline. So I just did that. I just created an outline of like headline titles on it and wrote it. I just took a notebook and just created an outline of introduction, um, each point I wanted to kind of focus on a point and broke that down. Each each point was like a chapter title, and I would write out a, a certain title, make up a title of whatever I wanted to focus on that chapter for five to ten minutes, mm-hmm. no, no more than ten minutes. So that's how I pretty much got a, an outline. But when you're doing a film, when you're interviewing the filming people, a lot of times that outline is going to change a little bit. Because when you talk to them, they might tell you something that you never even thought about or something that you never heard about. So now, you know, it kind of throws off your outline somewhat, but that can be a good thing as well. Um, So I pretty much just used a a solid, detailed outline to really map out the whole thing and really focused on the main key key points that I wanted to really push across. And But it was a lot of editing with the editor, um, we went through, I say, about 50 different versions of of the film, you know, cutting out certain points. So I didn't want the thing to be eight hours long. It could have easily been eight hours, but I know no one's going to sit down for eight hours to watch a film. So I wanted it to be under 90 minutes, which I got it down to 89 minutes, which was good. So just doing a full-fledged outline is really how I was able to put this thing together. Um, I want. I developed a beginning. I developed a middle, like an arc, and I developed uh, an ending. And then just tried to fill in the blanks between each of those to kind of just make everything flow. And it just took hours and hours of also transcribing and looking over all the interview stuff and breaking all their interview footage down word by word to see if it would fit into those you know outline segments. Some of the stuff didn't fit at all, and I just couldn't use it. But more than enough of it did to fit in the outline, which helped me, you know, kind of build the story throughout. So, right, it's, it's, it's so, a difficult process <laughs> for just the average person. But if you got like a creative mind, you kind of know what I'm talking about. So, you have to have that creative mind, yeah. which is which which takes me to the next place. If you if you had to do this all over again, would you do it? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. <laughs> Sometimes I think no, <laughs> but um, but uh, when I look back at it, you know, uh, yeah, I would do it. I would do it, no question. Um, Cause like I said, uh, it's been a great ride. 
so far. I've met a lot of great people by doing it. I think just, just the relationships I've built alone has been worth it. Um, I've, like I said, I've met some great people just touring the film, um, met some great scholars and and historians and researchers. Um, like I said, even behind the scenes, like my motion graphics people that I work with, my cinematographer, um, I'm, I'm, I can say that I actually gave a lot of people their first shot doing the film project. They're doing a major uh-huh. film project, and they've used this experience, and they've gotten great jobs and great careers out of out of it. So, you know, I think yeah, I would do it all over again because of those things that have came out of it. Not really having the film made per se; that's still an accomplishment. But just developing a lot of good relationships and meeting a lot of great people along the way, I think that's what's really um, that's that's been the best part about it. Right, and because you have premiered it in in Wilmington, what has happened to the people in Wilmington as a result of seeing this film? Well, I think it's been um I think it just hasn't been the film. I think it's been a combination of things. Um I think the film has done a lot, but I also think that what they're seeing in the media and stuff that's being captured on cell phone um foot video as well has really it's really opened up a lot of people and having a lot of people to start talking about uh, reinvesting in the community in Wilmington. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people talking about, you know, starting black-owned businesses and supporting them, um, you know, as a group now as well, which, you know, when I first started doing the film, I hardly ever heard, you know, African-Americans in the city of Wilmington talk about that. So I'm seeing, you know, a lot of that happening, you know, so far. I think it's because of the film. If it is, that's great. You know, if not, it's still great, as long as, you know, African-Americans are trying to do what they need to do, um, you know. So I think the film has so, done a lot, uh, not only for the African-American community, but I think it's done a lot for for the white community as well. Because, um, so, see, you have a lot of white folks who aren't really originally from Wilmington. You have a lot of people that come from other places. To move to Wilmington. Yes. Wilmington is mm-hmm. a beautiful place. You know, it's a, you know, it's a nice riverfront. There's about three or four beaches in Wilmington. You know, so a lot of people come there, you know, to, you know, for tourism and, or they'll move there for a new job or something like that, relocate. So a lot of people that come to the screenings in Wilmington, you know, a lot of times they're not even from the, the city. You know, either they just recently moved there or they've lived there for a few years. But they even recognize it when they come to the city that something is kind of, you know, weird in regards to race relations. And then when they hear about my film, they say, okay, I see why now. Let me go see this film to really see why this city is the way it is. So I get that a lot. And people hit me up a lot, you know, black and white, saying, you know, how much they love the film, how much it is, you know, open their eyes and everything. So. So how can the the listeners uh, see your film? Well, the film is going to be released on DVD and on digital download on November 10th. And the reason why it's going to be November 10th, because that's the actual day of the massacre. But you can log on to WilmingtonOnFire.com, WilmingtonOnFire.com, and keep up to date with the release and everything. But the DVD... And digital download will be released and available for purchase on November 10th. And if you're on Facebook, you can go to facebook.com slash Wilmington on Fire 
like the page. You can stay up to date with everything. And you can, you know, sign up for my email blast as well on WilmingtonOfire.com. Also, look out for the New Yorker magazine. They did an article about Wilmington on Fire, and it's going to be in the, the new issue of the New Yorker magazine. It's coming out next Monday. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And I have a comment, and it's saying to you, congratulations for preserving the history. Thank so you, you are to be commended. It. You are to be commended. So if others are considering doing something similar to what you have done in their community, what would you say to them? Um, I would say definitely do it. Um, I would say um, start off in your own community first because you'll be surprised what type of history is in your own backyard. I tell that to filmmakers a lot. Cause they want to go kind of big and go to a big city and try to find some history. They're like, nah, just start in your own backyard because mm-hmm. you'll be surprised what type of history is there. Because like, like I'm from a little town in Laurenburg and we have a lot of history in the, in the city of Laurenburg. It's like Wilmington isn't that big of a city, but you see the history they have with, you know, the 1898 massacre. So um, I would say starting your own backyard. Um, also, believe in yourself and invest in yourself. You're going to have to put your own money into it to, to start off with because no one's going to give you any money. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, just starting off this thing because they feel like if you don't believe in yourself, why should they? Um, you just have to, And that comes with a sacrifice. You might can't, you know, go out to eat and do all these things that you probably are accustomed to doing instead of using that money to do that. You know, save that money and use it towards your film project. Um, those are the, the sacrifices sometimes you have to make to do these type of projects. But if you believe in the project, if you know, you, you won't even miss it. And also, um, I think those are the two things, believing in yourself, starting your own backyard, and, and really putting, putting your own money into it at the beginning. And once you get it rolling and putting your own money into it and get, getting, getting it going and getting footage out there and really showing people that you're doing it, you'll be surprised a whole bunch of people will want to help you. And that's what happened with me. Um, I got like, I had, a, I had an NBA guy, actually. That's how I actually got the film finished. Uh, and the NBA player reached out to me. And he saw that I didn't have the film finished yet. And I told him I needed a certain amount of money to get it done. And he, he gave me the money, no strings attached. And that's how I got the film made. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you'll be surprised if you just put the work in. You, you never know who's watching. And, and just don't think about, oh, you know, I, I need to find this investor and stuff like that. Just do, do, do the best job you can. Study film. There's plenty of tutorials out there on YouTube for free of learning how to do a documentary, read as many books as possible. And these are the things that I've done over the years. I've purchased books on documentary filmmaking, looked at, you know, countless of documentaries just to study the, the editing styles, camera styles, and all that. So if you just do those things, um, yeah, it, it, you can do it. You can do it. If I'm from Laurenburg, a small town called Laurenburg, North Carolina, and I was able to do it, anybody out there can do it because of the Internet as well. The Internet has really made it open to network and connect with anybody, even after you make your film. You can sell your film to anybody across the world. So, you know, anyone out there can well, really do this. You just have to put in the time and, and, and the work into it. 
Right. And we have a comment coming out of the chat. It says, uh, thanks for sharing this history and your experience with us. Now, was there any reason you chose a documentary rather than other media like a book or a fictionalized movie? A fictionalized movie would have cost like would have cost a whole bunch of money. That's one. Um a fictionalized movie is still an option for me. Um actually working on a treatment, you know, right now. So I may still do a fictional a fictionalized version of it. But just I just didn't want to do it off then because I didn't have a lot of money to work with. Um, doing a mm-hmm. documentary was, you know, it just worked better within the budget I had at the time. I got it. And oh. doing a book, like I said earlier, a lot of people have written books about it. There's several books about it, but no one's actually did a documentary, an in-depth documentary. So I wanted mm-hmm. to do something different. And that's why I kind of chose the the documentary route because I also already had experience doing a documentary as well. So the cost factor of it and also I had experience already doing documentary films kind of led me to just doing the documentary first, you know. Because you had several people already who've written books about it, and I wanted to be outside of the box. I didn't want to do what everyone else was doing, so I decided to do a documentary on it. Right. Well, thank you so much. You're you're so encouraging, but you're also very passionate about what you have done. And it's something to encourage others. You know, a book is one thing, uh, a fictionalized movie, but also a documentary. And one of the things that we genealogists are fine. You know, anyone out there, it's whatever you feel comfortable with doing. And if you want to do a book, you should do it. If you want to do an animated version of it, you should do it. You know, it's, it's several different, you know, ways to, to, to preserve our history and tell the story. That's right. And it's all about telling that story, that's for yeah. sure. Well, yeah. Christopher, I want to thank you so much for joining me tonight and sharing not only the process, but also the research and your passion to get this story told. And yeah. I want everyone else to remember your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on research at the National Archives and beyond and the AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. Thank you so much, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night, everyone. Good night, Christopher. Good night.